a bisexual hairstylist who escaped a cult, a black mystic, and a recovering evangelical. What could go wrong? This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast with Lola Robbins, Kyle Butler, and Jason Elam. Welcome back to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. I am your host, Lola, your local Birmingham hooligan who loves hugs and the word fuck. Today, I am interviewing Andrew Pledger, who is an activist, writer, influencer, and podcaster. Uh, Andrew describes himself as a religious trauma survivor who escaped fundamentalist Christianity, the IFB church specifically. He brings awareness to spiritual and religious abuse. His podcast, Speaking Up with Andrew Pledger, offers a... offers a platform for people to share their stories of surviving toxic religion. Being part of the LGBTQ plus community and experiencing religious trauma has inspired Andrew to pursue psychology to help survivors. He is an influencer on the rise and his vocation started with the controversial interview with Josh Harris, who's the author of Kiss Stating Goodbye. He's appeared on several podcasts like Preacher Boys, Indoctrination, This Little Light of Mine, and Cheers to Leaving. And he's the social media manager for the Indoctrination Podcast, hosted by renowned cult expert Rachel Bernstein, and is now on a mission to spread awareness of these issues by using social media platforms. Wow, that was a lot. Andrew, thank you so much for being here. <laughs> yeah, love the intro. I was like, I was like, oh, she's going for the whole thing. Okay. I wanted to do the whole love thing. It. I mean, does. it it's it perfectly describes everything. It's very well written. So, oh yeah, thank you. Yes, and like I loved your your own intro. How you're like you love the word fuck. I was like trying not to laugh so hard. Yeah, <laughs> me. We so, love yeah, that. Okay. Oh yes. Um, <laughs> so normally we start off and ask, uh, you know, what was your spiritual upbringing? Like, were you raised in an atmosphere of faith? But obviously, mm-hmm. you were since yeah. you were part of the IFB. Mm-hmm. Cult, church, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, can you just tell us a little bit about that, um, about your upbringing, and about growing up in that atmosphere? Mm-hmm. Yes. So, you know, before I was born, you know, my parents they went to Hiles Anderson College, which is a notorious fundamentalist college that was really popular in the eighties in Christian circles, um, and it was really a big part of the IFB movement and like. It was an extension of a church that actually had a really big bus ministry. And for those of you listening, a bus ministry, that's a part of a church. It just means that every Sunday they use buses to go pick up kids in their city or in their county to get them to church and tell them that they deserve to burn in hell forever. And they send them back home, basically. (laughs) Um, So yeah, we traumatize a bunch of poor little kids, um, sadly. And... Just looking back on that, I just think it's so creepy and scary that parents would let their kids get on our buses. And anyways, well, but, I mean, <laughs> transportation—you uh, got to get the customers in. So <laughs> these were sketchy buses. I'm just oh, saying, really? like they were not up to date. Oh god! And yeah, but anyways, sorry, we digress. No, no, um, you're good. <laughs> Um, yes, yeah, so my parents graduated from Hiles Anderson. My dad became a pastor and my mom was a Christian school teacher. And it took them around like six to seven years to have children. And they never thought they were actually going to have children of their own. So they started looking into adoption. And so 
when they were looking to adoption, that's when they finally found out that they were pregnant. And so to them, they saw it as like a sign from God or a blessing from God because of all their years of praying. And, you know, because of that like strong emotional desire around having children and then they couldn't for so many years and they suddenly did, that really pushed them to dedicate the children that they would have to their God or their religion and make sure that they would raise their children exactly how they interpreted Christianity. And so anyways, when I think of that situation, I just think of like, oh my gosh, I know there's a story in the Bible or something about like this woman, she couldn't have a child and then God let her have it. She's like, I'll dedicate it to you. And I'm like, I don't know. It just makes me think of that. Okay, there are so many Bible stories that are just that same about women being barren that somehow are like, have a a servant raped or suddenly become pregnant Mm. and they're like, oh, this is for God. So yeah, that that tracks. tracks. Yeah, oof. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's sad though because in those times, a woman's worth was based on having children. And if she couldn't, there was just so much shame around that. Um, But, you know, all of a sudden they went from after seven years of being barren, all of a sudden, uh, you know, within like nine years of that they had, or after that they had three boys. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, so I'm the middle child of three boys. My oldest brother is 25. My youngest brother is 18. And, you know, to me, I'm trying to think of like my first memory of the IFB. And I think honestly, my first memory of it um, was probably like in like kindergarten Sunday school or whatever, or the three to five year old Sunday school. I think I was around like four or five. And like there were moments and pieces that I remember, but I think it was just, it's one thing that I guess I've never forgotten is that. I always love like the flannel graph stories. You know what I mean? Like the fabric oh, of characters. We talk about flannel graphs on this podcast <laughs> so often. I mean, it's jolting how often flannel graphs are brought up. <laughs> yes. And it's like, iconic. It's like, oof. But I loved flannel graph and I loved telling stories as a kid. So my mom, she eventually started buying me that like for Christmas presents and birthday presents. And like during church, I would just, you know, they were like, whatever fabric pews and I would just be sitting on the floor and putting up these different photographs on the back of it because I loved it and I was bored during the service but um in Sunday school I just remember the photograph stories and for me like I always remember like being told from such a young age about like Satan and how you're on a path to hell like you're gonna burn forever if you don't do this so like as like a five-year-old child I just remember like the teacher pitting this flannel graph with this these burning flames um and then you know they have Satan and he's like this white guy <laughs> they just wait fl- Satan is white <laughs> it was really funny they put Satan as like this I think it was like a white angel or something mm. it's white angel just slaps it on the floor. Like this is Satan, and like he's coming after me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's not that scary. Like he's kind of hot, actually. Like, <laughs> it's like Vecna yeah. with Stranger Things. The uh, the Vecnessy. That's a meme right now. Oh, Talk really? Vecnessy. Oh, yes, anyway. is. I've been seeing that. Yes, mm. I know. It's just so obviously. I don't think I thought that that age, but just looking back, I'm like, mm, like unconscious things might have been going on. But uh, Satan, um, yeah, <laughs> Satan. 
Um, so I just remember from such a young age and, you know, as a developing child, you're just bombarded with all these doctrines and all these dogmas and like you're still developing and you don't have a mind that can really, you can't think for yourself. You don't have critical thinking skills and you're emotionally, financially and physically dependent on your caregivers and on your parents. And, you know, as a child, a child automatically conforms to what their parents think they want. It's just natural until the child grows and develops and starts to become their own person. And then, you know, slowly breaks away as they become independent. But I think that's what's so insidious about the IFB is that from such a young age, they start indoctrinating us, which is really like making us accept beliefs without questioning them so that it's just ingrained in our minds. And I think a lot of the messages that they ingrain us from such a young age causes so much developmental trauma and so much religious trauma um, that I think just takes people the rest of their lives to be in therapy um, and work through. And I think really as I grew up in that environment and looking at the different stages, I remember I think I got saved. I think I was like seven. I was seven years old. And like, you know... With the IFB, you like you follow this the ABC of prayer, like you admit, believe, confess to God, whatever. Then you then you have a ticket to heaven forever. Then you're saved. Then you're good. And the issue around that though is that you know they always try to make you, they try to make it seem like you could have a secure salvation. But then again, they would still always try to make you doubt it to kind of keep you dependent on the church and to stay in the fold. Because um, like they would say, oh yes, like if you do this, this, and this, then you're saved. But if you don't conform or like these certain religious things, like if you don't like our church or possibly like, you know, agree with certain things or, you know, because if you, you're supposed to enjoy going to church if you're a true Christian, that's what they always taught. And so they're like, if you don't enjoy it, then it's a possibility that you might not be saved. Or if you sin and do this and this, you maybe not feel that bad about it. Or there's just so much doubt seated around it that just kept you scared and dependent on them. And I think from such a young age too, you're just taught that you're just completely evil. You're wicked inside out. Um, there's a lot of self-annihilation. Like you're taught you can't trust yourself. You can't trust your thoughts. You can't trust your hearts. You're like, your heart is deceitful and wicked. So they cut off your autonomy. So you're so dependent on everyone outside of you. And like, I think a big issue with that is number one, like there's so much internalized shame that happens. Like, I think it's important for, you know, to talk with people about like the difference between guilt and shame. Like guilt is feeling bad about something that you've done, but shame is when you feel like that you are bad, you are flawed and you are worthless. And there is this just shame based messaging that is perpetrated so much in these IFB and fundamentalist type churches. And I think it really damages the psychological and emotional development of children. Because children need to develop healthy self-esteem. Um, and especially before you get to the 10 years when it goes to shit. Um, <laughs> anyways, so for me... Wait, when you get to the, the 10 years, what? Sorry, teen years. When you get to the teen, teen years, years, teen okay. years, my bad. No, teen years. yeah. Is that when you... Did you start to question things? Like as a child, did you... Were you so indoctrinated that it... It made sense at the time. And mm -hmm. then as you became a teenager, it unraveled. Like, pull us into your deconstruction story oh, yes. with mm -hmm. this as well. Cause yeah. I, mm -hmm. 
I know your story. Yeah. And I really think, I uh-huh. really think our listeners, I think you guys oh. are going to enjoy hearing okay. this because yes. it's, there's so many layers because it, it comes mm. in with your education too. So oh, yes, familial ties, education Oof. plus church. Oh, yes. Um, mm-hmm. So tell me, tell me when all the questioning mm-hmm. began for you. Yeah. So I would say that I really, I didn't question it probably until I was around like 15-ish, I would say. And maybe there were a few things before that where like a pastor would say something and like there is like an alert that would like I would feel inside of me like or a little voice would say that's not right like that's ratchet no but you learn to ignore it <laughs> oh yes because, it's my thoughts yeah. are evil so no yeah your original Satan <laughs> Satan um, Satan oh. <laughs> um and so for me what really I so I mean I guess. I'll give people an overview of like what I was like when I was indoctrinated. Um, so of course, when you're indoctrinated into these cultic environments, you know, you think you're right. Everyone else is going to hell. Um, you're righteous. You're enlightened in a sense to God's truth. Everyone else is blind to truth. You're on a path of righteousness and you see suffering as a good thing and you want it and it's seen as like God is testing you. So there's just, there's so much self-righteousness in these cultic environments. And for me, like I look down on a lot of people outside of the cult really. And, you know, I think it's interesting because as a kid, I was not aware of the definition of a cult. And it really wasn't until this year that as I began learning about cults, that I'm like, oh my gosh, like my church meets the criteria for a cult. But I'll get into that later as I get into my deconstruction now. Um, but for me, I think what started the deconstruction, which I think if this would have never happened, I would have been indoctrinated and stayed into it. But for me, what caused that questioning was the cognitive dissonance. Um, of my experiences not matching the beliefs or the teachings of the church. So it was really with my sexuality. Like I was taught a very specific thing about sexuality. It was very narrow, very specific, and just very generalized and hateful. And, you know, the ch- church I went to would just paint all uh, the LGBTQ plus community as like perverts and that they were going around, and this is in air quotes, converting people to their lifestyle. And, you know, once I realized, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is not actually a lifestyle choice. This is just a part of being human and it's something that's natural. And, you know, of course, I didn't think those thoughts at first to be a long time to get to that point. But originally, um, I developed so much internalized homophobia, really from so many homophobic and toxic messages around the LGBTQ plus community because I was growing up, I was a very homophobic person. <laughs> um, because Join the club, we've got jackets. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we've all come out. Oh, yes. Oh, I love that for us. But it was just, you know, what happens is, you know, you conform to the group, you're indoctrinated, you don't question it. And you have no concept of sexuality at all. Like they don't teach sexuality in the church, period, except don't have sex and that's it. Or wait till marriage. And then everything, you'll know how to do it exactly. And it'll be great, which is not the case for a lot of people, but we'll get into that later. But um, (laughs) so for me, it was just all that homophobia that I had towards other people. And even if like I saw it on like TV or the news, I'm like, oh, like so evil, just because I was indoctrinated to believe that. And so, you know, I was conditioned to have that response. And no, I didn't, 
you know, in that environment, you're, it has such a black and white view of everyone. And, you know, you're really, you don't see someone else's perspective. It just, it's just from your own. And you don't even try to understand the other person. You just demonize everyone outside of your group, basically. Um, yes, you don't even see their humanity no, half the time. Not at all. And that is this. You just see mm. it. It's like love the sin, but hate the sinner. Uh-uh. I'm sorry, wrong thing. Wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they say, but it's the it's kind of the opposite. Yeah, when the hypocrisy mm-hmm. comes into it, because behind the scenes they are partaking in the sins, mm. whilst judging the mm. sinner. Yeah, as the opposite of scripture. Mm. So I mean, technically, I, I wasn't wrong, but yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Absolutely, I, I love someone. Some of the the deconstruction community took that phrase and said, "Hate the belief, love the believer," <laughs> and I just love that that they changed it. Um, Tattoo that on me. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, for me, all that homophobia that went, that was projected up to other people was then internalized. And sadly, you know, because of all that time of being really taught to hate gay people or queer people, I really developed that self hatred for myself. And psychologically, it was just too much to deal with. And like I fell into depression and anxiety. But for me, I repressed it for a couple of years before actually like finally like falling into like depression and mental health issues when I finally like admitted that to myself, like really coming out to yourself, (laughs) which I feel like a lot of us like had to do and come to terms with. And it's the first step. Yeah, it is. It's like, I feel like a, it's the first step. Yes. You have to admit you have the problem. Oh, no. <laughs> you have to admit you have the queerness. <laughs> the good queerness. Yes. And so um, for me, like, I heard so many awful things my parents would say about queer people. So for me, it's like, okay, how do I, how do I grapple with my faith and my sexuality? Because I've been taught that they can't go together and that if, I'm this, then God hates me, and then I'm going to hell. And you know, when you're taught that God literally destroyed a whole city and killed all these people, but just because of their sexuality, basically, um, you know, you tend to have a negative view of God and think that He hates you when you, you know, when you're told that, really. Um, but for me, um, honestly, it was really crazy the different coping mechanisms that developed as a result of to what really was religious trauma regarding because of my sexual identity. And like there were other aspects of religious trauma outside of that, just just like self-worth and just traumatic things that happened in the church in general. Um, But for me, I got so like, I fell into such a deep depression. And this happened at like 16. So a deep depression that I basically like didn't have an appetite anymore. And I went like two weeks without hardly eating anything. And I lost like 20 pounds in two weeks. Like it was really bad. And like, I really thought that, I mean, I really was dying. And like my parents were really, really worried because they knew like, oh my gosh, like he hasn't really eaten much in like, you know, a few weeks. Like, you know, he's been trying to stay hydrated, but they've noticed that, noticed how really, you know, that trauma manifested somatically in my body in that way. But of course, I wasn't educated on trauma then. So I didn't, to me, at that point, like I was taught mental health issues, you know, oh, well, it's from Satan, it's demons attacking you. So of course, that's not the reality. So doing 
doing what the church told me to do to deal with mental health wasn't working for me. So that was another moment of cognitive dissonance. I'm like, okay, well, they're telling me it's this, but reading my Bible and praying and doing all these things is not working. Um, but yeah, so basically, I think really what caused me to get out of that depression and to cope was it was really freaky. And like, you know, I've talked about this many times before um, when I've told my story and like, you know, I've told my therapist this, but it's just really freaky of how basically my mind developed or created a different identity, a personality, a person. And so I went around thinking I was somebody else because for at that time, like my psychologically, I couldn't even cope or deal with, I couldn't stand the thought being a me basically. So it was really like, you know, I guess we either die or just pretend to be or think that I was somebody else. And so it's just something I think that automatically happened in my psyche as just a way to cope with that. And I just, I remember and why I realized it was that I would come home sometimes and I would look in the mirror and I would be shocked with what I would see. Cause and then again, another moment of cognitive dissonance of like, oh, I didn't know I was that person. I didn't know I looked like that. So, and it would cause that discomfort because there was just so much self-hatred. And, you know, I talked to my therapist about it. I was like, you know, it took me a long time um, to even just look in the mirror or just even have an image of what I actually look like. And I was like, you know, is this some kind of like personality disorder? Or, you know, what's the criteria? Like this is, thankfully, I don't struggle with that anymore. And as I, you know, it took me years to build confidence and have self-worth. Um, but you know, my therapist was like, yeah, it's like, it was just, it was an extreme coping mechanism that just automatically happened to cope with that trauma of dealing with that internalized homophobia and that self-hatred, um, from those toxic doctrines. And so for me, learning to get rid of that self-hatred was part, really the big start of like the deconstruction. And, you know, I was always taught to stay away from liberal theology <laughs> or progressive theology. And that it was like evil and of Satan or whatever. Um, but once I actually started digging into the alternative views of like the Bible verses, the clobber verses really that are used against the LGBTQ plus community, I learned that a lot of them were mistranslated and taken out of context because of what things meant then. <clears throat> 1946. Yes, 1946 <laughs> was when the word homosexual was put in the Bible. And it was interesting though, because I grew up on the King James version of the Bible. So there, the homosexual was never in the King James version, but it would just have general descriptions of what was going on, I guess you would say. And so they would interpret it as homosexuality, which in fact, the context meant something else, some religious sexual orgy rituals that they would do back then. I don't have time to get all into that, but there are plenty of resources. I know like there's a book, there's several, just look up Clobber versus book and there it will, it will guide you through the theology and the context of those things. And also like finding Bible verses that contradicted what the church was telling us, how God destroyed the city because they were homosexuals and like learning that the greatest sin of like um, Simon Gomorrah was that like they mistreated the poor, they stole from the poor and they took all for themselves. I was like, huh, sounds like America. Like what? <laughs> ah, the real undoing of the evangelical fundamentalist Christian mm, yes. movement. Yeah, mm. the, the undoing is actually when you become knowledgeable and mm. uh, you know self-aware and you start to think critically mm. about these yes. things. Mm-hmm. Given at face value by a person that's like, 
I am the voice of God. I am a white man in a nice suit <laughs> driving a, a nice BMW. And you should hear what I say. Huzzah. Welcome yeah. to Islands. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, it's all good. Um, but so basically, as I began to really dig into the theology of that, and even like knowing that still didn't help too much because it was still so ingrained. So like constantly like reading even just from different authors on the same perspective and their church. So seeing that there was consistent um, research and context into this and, you know, really how even still, I think things that, you know, honestly, I'm just going to say this, like there are, the Bible's not perfect. It's full of errors. That was another thing that shocked me when I... You sound so hesitant to say, the Bible's not perfect. <laughs> like, I'm just worried because I don't, I don't know who's listening, but it's whatever. But Everybody listening to this most likely knows that or is on good. their way to knowing it. So yeah. <laughs> it's good we ripped the Band-Aid off. Scripture <laughs> is not for the salt accurate. Balloon. It's not literal. Yeah. yeah. And, and so like for me, like... I guess really, because in religion, there are so many claims that are made that you cannot prove or disprove. So for me, when I got older, and uh, sorry, I'm skipping too far ahead. So I'll just, I'll keep going in chronological order, but I'll go, I'll get to that. You can skip. It doesn't matter to me. <laughs> oh, got you. Um, but as I, that was really what I started deconstructing, but I was so emotionally dependent on religion that deconstructing it was too much for me to handle or questioning it was too much because you know, I had no autonomy. I didn't trust myself. Like I was so disconnected from myself. Like this was like my emotional and psychological dependency was on this religion. It was so emotionally addictive, really. Um, and so for me, like I just tried to just try to create the healthiest faith that I could at that time and try to deal with my sexuality. And that didn't really work out that well. Um, and eventually, like, I knew I wanted to leave the IFB church. I think it was around like 16 or 17. I'm like, okay, this church is unhealthy. Like, I didn't dig into the specifics of the psychology or religious trauma. I didn't know about that yet, but I knew internally, I knew myself and listened to myself enough then to know, okay, this is unhealthy. I need to leave this. I just need a different kind of church. And so when I went to a different church, it was, it was still like a, a similar mindset, really, but I knew, friends that went there. So that's why I went because I just, I really wanted that community and I needed that and I didn't fit in or even belong at all at the church that I grew up in. And so when I was at that church for a few months, I eventually was basically shunned from it because people spread rumors about my sexuality. And so I was like, shit, like, you know, one week I have friends and next week I really don't have any. Um, And so that was really hard emotionally, like as a teenager to deal with that. And I think that really caused... Um, so many like trust issues and it really, really caused like the, the trauma response of being ultra independent where you just, you're so independent that you don't depend on anyone for anything whatsoever and you just never ask for help at all. Um, <laughs> so that's something that happened as a result of that and something, you know, I've learned to undo as I've been having that balance of interdependence of knowing when I need people and when I don't and when I can do things on my own. But through that, I was like, you know what? I eventually, I got a job at a fast food restaurant, which is it's funny. I, I worked at Chick-fil-A, ironically. Wow. Um, I know. Yes, that cognitive dissonance still going on. Um, so it was just for me, because like, I wasn't at that time, like just so that people know, I didn't have internet access until I was 17 years old. Um, 
I just want people to know that. So like, I never... Was that a religious stipulation or parental or... Parental, parental. And like the religion did encourage parents to just keep like, you know, don't let your kids have devices, don't let them have access to the internet, blah, blah. Um, but it was just a parental thing. And I think it was influenced by the church. Um, but yeah, so I didn't have internet access until I was 17 years old. Um, and, you know, it was funny. My church never talked about Chick-fil-A at all. I don't remember them ever doing it, which is so interesting. Um, because I feel like a lot of churches do talk about Chick-fil-A because of its founder and really because of their homophobia that they have. But I did know before getting the job there that they did have conservative values and that was concerning to me. But, you know, I was still figuring out who I was and what I believed. And for me, like working at Chick-fil-A was the first step or first place outside of the cult, really. Um, and it was the first place that I could walk out of the cult where my parents would not be worried about it because they had this idea in their minds that Chick-fil-A was just full of these super conservative Christians. But that wasn't true, thankfully, honestly. And it was just so interesting to discover how the stereotypes of who works at Chick-fil-A didn't match. But um, I was shocked also by how many LGBTQ people worked at Chick-fil-A that I was at. I was like... No, was... My friend Macy used to work there. And I mean, it was... And like people are cursing, lots of LGBTQ friendly people. I mean, yes. it's just like when you send your your mm-hmm. kid to yeah. um, to Bible college or something like that, or Bible camp, thinking you know, mm. oh, it's all good influences about Jesus and God, but really everybody's fucking each other, like and doing drugs. So <laughs> I mean, <laughs> sorry oh for God. all the parents out there, but you're. Kid probably lost their virginity um, to bring it to you. at a church camp or On a <laughs> in a dorm room yeah. at Faulkner University. <laughs> oh, that's oddly specific. Love that. Do you wish that your deconstruction had happened under different circumstances? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I honestly, I don't think my deconstruction would have never happened if it weren't for my sexuality, honestly. So um, it was interesting because, you know, I think gay people, when they're taught to really hate themselves, they eventually try to learn why to be thankful for like who they are as a person and the different parts of themselves and bringing it all together. And I think for me, I guess I'm grateful for being queer is that it caused me to get out of that cultic mindset and to dig into my religious trauma and to just wake up to the fact of how culty this place was and how harmful their ideology and teachings were. And, you know, it's been interesting because I've been, I've been writing a book, you know, I'm 22 now, but I've been writing a book since I was 19. And it was just kind of like, that's when I started to try to work through my issues that I had in the church. Still, again, I was not educated yet on mental health or trauma um, because I just always had this very narrow view of it. And I didn't just didn't know. And, you know, my church is very anti-psychology against seeking mental health help outside of the church. Um, so there's just so much stigma around it. And, you know, even if you did struggle with mental health, there was still so much blame and shame put on you, which just made it worse anyways. Um, but it's funny because, you know, starting writing that book at 19 really, really helps me to start to get process and get those stories and experiences out. And it was interesting because 
I was grappling back and forth with what to call a book. And originally, which this is not the title now, but originally, just for controversial reasons for me, but I, I was going to call it Thank God I'm Gay. That was that the... is so iconic. Why didn't you choose that one? <laughs> <laughs> because once I, you know, I just finished the first draft of my story. And like once I actually finished it, I'm like, okay, well, this title doesn't match the story. I didn't feel like it matched it. So to me, I'm like, I have to have a title that matches, which I feel like I will put that phrase in the description of my book. I won't have it as the title. Um, but Can I name this the, that, episode, Thank God I'm Gay with Andrew Fletcher? Yes, yes like, do it. Uh, okay, whatever I had in mind, listeners will now see it as um, Thank God I'm Gay with Andrew Fletcher. I love that. <laughs> I love it. Um, but, you know, as I, as I finished the, the first draft of this, my story, I was like, oh my gosh, like this is just a really sad <laughs> story. And, it, and there are inspiring elements, but this is just a story of loneliness, disconnection and trauma and inner conflict and just coming of age and identity. And really, like the common theme that I saw throughout all these stories that my life is that I suffered in silence. And so I was like, oh my gosh, I think suffering in silence is such a great title for this book because that was just, if you could just, you know, for me, if I could sum it up in a short thing, it was like, I would say I suffered in silence for years. And I feel like that's kind of the point of the book is that, you know, I didn't have to suffer in silence. And eventually, I didn't suffer in silence anymore and I did speak up and I told my story and helped other people tell their stories through my own podcast and you know, realizing how empowering it is to tell your story. And it's interesting because you know I posted a quote that I came up with on my own on Instagram and I posted it today because it just it popped into my mind as I thought about my experiences. But the quote that I um, put and you know it says you know, quote, for me, the pain of staying silent was greater than my fear of speaking up. Um, and really like that's why I spoke out because the pain of staying silent was just so much stronger than the fear of like, oh, what if I be that honest? What if I be authentic? What if I that, show people? That is a powerful and, testament to your entire story. And that kind of brings it full circle. Oh, I, I kind of... I didn't think much about the title of your podcast, Speaking Up with Andrew Pledger, but now it it kind of comes mm -hmm. full circle that like you didn't have a voice for so long mm -hmm. or your voice was silenced mm -hmm. in, yeah. in all these cult circles that you ran in. Mm -hmm. But now, mm -hmm. speaking up. <laughs> I'm speaking up. I fucking love yeah. that. <laughs> Gotta have it in there. Yes. Um, and so someone sent me this quote today that was kind of a similar idea of it, but it's by Maya Angelou. Forgive me if I'm saying her last name wrong. I don't know. Angelou, I don't know. I have never known how to say it, so... I don't know. Um, sorry, y'all, but... We, we, the, know, we know who you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. The, the quote is, there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside of you. And everybody has a story. That is... Yes. Everyone has a story. And like, for me, that's also why I started the podcast because, you know, I do believe that every story does matter. And it's interesting because I, you know, I first told my story on Joshua Harris's um, Instagram live show. His show is called Every Story Matters. <laughs> and 
he just interviewed different people who wanted to share their story of like religious trauma or growing up in a Christian environment and grappling with the negative effects of that. And so I'll, I'll dig into more how that came to be in a second. But digging back into the deconstruction, I think it was when I was... Okay, so I got a job at Chick-fil-A. I found a community. I found love and acceptance in that environment. And it was really great. It was the first time that I felt that. But there was still that struggle with my identity because there were other reasons, I guess, that I felt like in that environment, I still had to put on a show or a certain personality and be someone else. Still, because I always, I always felt like I had to be somebody else for people to actually like me or like want to get to know me. And it took me so long to get over that. But all those years I was there though, I was grateful that people did accept me and didn't discriminate against me on my sexuality at least. So that was just something that just made such a difference um, in my mental health. And, you know, while I was at Chick-fil-A, you know, I... I don't know. At that time, I admitted to myself, I'm like, oh my gosh, like I hate going to church so much. Like when you finally get into an environment that's healthier, at least, and then you have to go back into the toxic environment, it's really hard. Um, I really had to jump between like both worlds, like (laughs) trying to get the best of both worlds. Um, (laughs) But so it was really tough because, you know, at home, I couldn't be myself. I couldn't talk about my sexuality, couldn't at church, but then at Chick-fil-A, I didn't have to worry about at least like, you know, how I talked, how I walked, my mannerisms, what I said. Um, and, you know, even the fear of like people asking like, oh, like, are you dating anyone? Are you interested? And it was just so awkward just to deal with that. Um, but, you know, eventually... You know, I, I, you know, I was homeschooled my whole life. That was, you know, my parents did that for the purpose of indoctrinating me and my brothers into fundamentalist Christianity and just to continue the uh, family line of fundamentalist Christians. And I think really, it was around like, I think it was like 17 years old. I made the decision at that time, at least internally, that I'm going to leave the IFB church. I knew that at that age. Um, but I didn't get to leave until I was 22. And we'll get into that later. Um, but the struggle was, it was just this inner conflict of like, yes, I had, you know, I had been honest enough with myself to tell myself, I want nothing to do with the IFB. This is miserable. I want to get away from conservative Christianity. This is toxic. Um, but there's still, there's still so much indoctrination that's inside of me. And, you know, my parents, they would only pay for a Christian college and, it was interesting because I did have the choice to either stay home or go to a Christian college. That was the options. And it was interesting because, you know, I eventually, you know, when I graduated high school, I went to Bob Jones University in the fall of 2018. And for people who don't know what Bob Jones University is, it it was a fundamentalist college that started in the 1920s. And right now it doesn't identify itself as fundamentalist, but it is still, honestly. But it's a very strict Christian conservative college that is in Greenville, South Carolina. And they have a lot of controversy with race issues through the 80s and then even until like 2000. Um, And they have sexual abuse issues too with like victims coming forward and then victims being blamed and all that sad stuff. And that was a whole mess. But they've had a lot of different controversies um, throughout their history. But um, my parents, you know, they would only pay for a Christian college. And 
you know, it's really annoying to me how people they'll ask like, you know, when you finally come out of the closet as like queer or gay or whatever you identify as, people are like, oh my gosh, why do you go to that college? Like you made that choice. And it's just really frustrating because we're not really given a choice. Um, and it was interesting because I, I've actually found out a term for this and it's called a double bind. And it's something manipulators use. And it's basically when a manipulator, they give you two options, but neither option is desirable. So it's, there's not really choice. It's just an illusion of choice. So either choice you make, the outcome is not good, no matter what. Um, and so really, I guess that's what I tell people. I'm like, you know what? I was put in a double bind. I had to choose either, okay, am I going to stay home in my IFB church and work? Or am I going to go to a a Christian college where I might can be able to break the rules and learn how to survive and, you know, detach from my parents. Um, so I ended up in that situation going to Bob Jones University. And, you know, another reason too is that if I'm like, if I'm going to go to a Christian school, like it has to be a legitimate education and very few Christian schools are, you know, accredited, but thankfully Bob Jones was. So their credits actually meant something. Um, so I decided to go there. I'm like, okay, like, you know, they're still they're still very strict, and like they have a list of churches that you're allowed to go to. You have to pick one of them. It's so weird, it's so controlling. But um, you know, I was still like, I was so scared to go to Bob Jones. I'm like, oh my gosh, like I'm going to be hate crime just from walking on campus. Like this is just not going to be good. And so I just had that fear again of just being in this kind of environment, just feeling out of place, not belonging, um, not feeling safe. And just, you know, when you feel like you can't be yourself, it's really hard to make friends and connect with people and be authentic. You just, you're surrounded by so many people, but you feel so alone and so isolated. Um, and so for me, my first semester, oh my gosh, it was just, oh, it was hell. It's terrible. But for me, like, you know, I was always a goody two shoes growing up. I followed the rules, but Bob Jones really, kick that out of me. It caused me to be a rule breaker. Oh gosh. Um, it's just really ironic. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> and for me, like the first semester, I generally tried to follow every single rule in their rule book. And it was just so miserable. I'm like, I hate the churches that they have on their list. They're so homophobic. They're so conservative. They're so close-minded. They're so cultish. And you know, I just, I can't, I hate this. And they would, you were required also to do so many other religious activities too. Um, so religious activities at Bob Jones, for example, would be like, you would like go to chapel like three to four times a week, which is like a worship service and then like a sermon. <sighs> so annoying. So it was like church, thank four days a week, whatever. Um, but you would have that for like 35 minutes. It was a 35 minute session four times a week. But And then we would have discipleship groups that we were required to go to which is you would meet 10.30 at night with a couple of other dorm rooms and you would just really talk about what was being talked in chapel. So it's just reinforcing that indoctrination. And also society was another thing that was required, which is the Christian version of fraternity and sororities. And it's, but it's not cool or fun at all in any shape or form. Um, <laughs> so, and that's another spiritual thing where, you know, you would get together with the society that you chose you know, you would meet every week, you would play games and then have some kind of little sermon, devotional prayer time. Um, but yeah, the, and then obviously you had to always go to church every week. So there were always instances of where we had to do these religious activities to just continue to be indoctrinated. And I was just so tired of the control. And 
you know, once I started figuring out how I could start breaking the rules, um, that's really what helped me survive and stay there because I'm like, you know what? If I can get through this for four more years and I can get my degree, I can walk away and I can move on with my life. But, you know, up until that point, I had only been like deconstructing like LGBTQ plus theology. That's the only thing. And so, and maybe there were a few questions in my mind, but I just, I would suppress them. Um, and, you know, I think fundamentalism is something I did question a little bit in my teen years. And, you know, I bought a book on it. And long story short, my dad took that book away from me because he didn't want me to read it because he was so threatened by that. But that's a whole other thing. Another cultic example of how these environments try to control information. Um, so, and I was honestly, I went back and I found the book and I, I was scared to read it for a while because, you know, like I said, I was so emotionally and psychologically dependent on this religion. But it wasn't until a year later that I read that and began questioning and understanding the to- toxicity bes- like behind the mindset of fundamentalism. Of it's like black and white thinking, like the us versus them and how, you know, they're claiming to an absolute truth and everyone else is wrong. Everyone else is burning in hell. And how getting locked in that mindset stops you from growing psychologically and emotionally and it disconnects you from so many other people um, in society. And like that kind of thinking creates a lot of fanatics um, and a lot of crazy ass religions too. Um, that can be violent because when you know when you believe that you're absolutely right and that everyone else is wrong is evil, like we were talking about earlier, you de- you dehumanize everyone else. They're not human. They don't matter. They don't have worth. And you know I'm righteous. I'm good. So it just it just causes this whole like superiority complex <laughs> type thing that goes on. Um, but it wasn't until. I think it was like my second semester at Bob Jones of my freshman year, which was like the spring of like 2019 or, or winter and spring 2019. And I began to skip church because I was sick of it. Like, and I would, you know, you were required to go to church. And I found a way to like skip church without getting in trouble, but they did it through they would take church attendance through an honor system. So you would have to submit a form every week just saying, yes, I went to church. <laughs> and I would submit that every week, not go to church. Um, which was really hard for me to deal with because I had so much anxiety about just doing every little thing wrong. Like, I, you know, growing up, I struggled with OCD and like OCD and religion do not go together at all, <laughs> period. And, you know, I was always afraid that like God was going to destroy me or hurt me. Or just if I did anything wrong, so I like I would obsessively pray like all the time in my head. So I was like whispering, just be obsessive over and over. And so I guess I feel like that like, God wouldn't like strike me with lightning or something. But that was really hard to just you know I had to be like you know what I'm my mental health is better not going to church. So I'm gonna you know we're already have all these other activities we're doing every day. Then we have so much homework. I'm like give me Sunday to actually rest because this is not rest. Absolutely. Church is not rest for most people. It never was for me. No, it was not for me. Like as an introvert who like does not thrive in crowds, like I love smaller groups of people, but like for crowds, all the just craziness and noises and like I'm really like I'm hypersensitive too. It's just, I'm like, no, like I couldn't deal with that. Um and I think really, it was funny because to skip church, I would literally hide in the closet. That's, <laughs> literally that's telling. Closet. That tracks with the sexuality thing. Anyway, <laughs> that's good. Yeah, like it's so funny. But I would literally, no, because the resident assistants on each floor, which, they, you know, 
they would just make sure they were like the den mom of the floor, basically, I guess you would say, or den mother. And they would check every single room on Sunday morning to make sure you were out of bed. If you weren't, they would get you out of bed and make you get dressed and go to church. Um, so I would always like sit in this closet in the darkness, so scared and like hiding behind a hamper covered in clothes, trying to hide myself. This is so cringy, but sadly it's what you had to do to survive at this place. And I would just listen and hear doors being opened like and shut film. and like, you know, the doors would lock. So this, uh, I know. And. I just remember that, you know, all the doors would lock. So like he would actually, I don't even know if they had door locks at this time. Now that I remember, which is sad. The dorm rooms actually did not have locks on them, which is really not good. Um, but so I would just hear doors opening and closing and shutting. And I would hear the sound get closer, closer and closer. And then I hear my door open and like, <gasps> I'm like holding my breath in. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I like, don't make a noise. And. They wouldn't do a thorough search. They would just look in each bed and just leave. Um, so thankfully, they never looked in the closets. <laughs> um, and eventually, like I got tired of hiding in the closet, and I would just I would get dressed. I would first get dressed in like shorts and a t-shirt, and then I would put my dress clothes over that, and then I would leave campus. And I always had like a little backpack with me. And then I were like, I would go to a local park. I would undress in their like public bathroom. I put my church clothes in there and just enjoy nature for a couple of hours until like there was a certain time that I was allowed back on campus. So yeah, some of the crazy things I had to do um, to go with being there. Boy. And like no one <laughs> I know, I was crazy. But no, it's funny for Bob, just like for me, I guess it's just, it's crazy that I just had to do those things in general, that someone, a college student, an adult had to actually do that. <laughs> it's just crazy. Um, just how, how they treated, it just shows how they treated us like children, um, really. Um, and I'm trying to think of like other things. Like there was one point someone did see me walk away from the campus and not go to church. And they reported me and then like the dorm person or whatever, some of the staff just, they started following me around. They started actually stalking me. And it was really weird. And like, I noticed it because I always made sure I knew who the leaders were and what their role was so that I would know who to stay away from or who to watch out for. And when I noticed this specific person following me, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is not good. I eventually... I was like, okay, like, am I being paranoid? Like, I was, I was walking on the street, and this person is like a hundred feet behind me walking. I'm like, is he just walking? Is he following me? So I decide to go on these like weird ass roads to walk away and get away from this person. And every road that I'm on, they're on, and no matter where I go. And I was like, okay, like they're definitely following me now because I'm going places where it doesn't lead anywhere. Like they have no reason <laughs> to do this except follow me. And so after that. Another instance was that I remember there was you know, that park I would go to, that was like my escape haven. And it was just, it was half a mile from Bob Jones. And, you know, I didn't have a car, so I would walk there. And, you know, so basically, one, it was one night, I was just, it was, this was not during church, but I was frustrated. And I just left campus and I went to this park because I'm like, I just need to get away. And later that night, when I got back, my dorm soup's like, yeah, it's like, I saw you go to that park by yourself. Are you okay? And I was like, shit, he actually followed me. And like, this was late at night when it was pitch black dark. Like, that was very Previous creepy. Park. And like, and I don't, and like, he didn't even know it was a park because what he said really was, why did you walk into the woods? 
Um, because the entrance of the park, you walk, it's like a bunch of trees and it's just a driveway. And so it was just really creepy to hear that they actually watched, like he had his car parked somewhere and he knew that I would go there and he followed me. That is some kind of true crime shit right there. Like, <laughs> and I was like, fuck, I'm on a blacklist or something. Um, so I tried to stay low key and like try different places to go to. And like after my freshman year, um, they didn't really follow me around anymore. I don't think that I noticed. Um, but you know, going back into the deconstruction, um, for me, I just, at that point, it was like really, I guess it was my freshman year. Um, that I was just struggling so much with my mental health. I dealt with a lot of like bullying and harassment from people at Bob Jones that freshman year just for my sexuality. And, you know, it's just, I felt like I said, I didn't belong. I felt so isolated. And there was so much, there were so many repressed emotions, you know, repressed sexuality, um, repressed trauma, you know, unprocessed trauma. There was just so many things like my mind was just a crazy ass storm was just going on inside my mind. It was just too much. And like, I became very suicidal. And like, you know, I just felt so hopeless because, you know, I was, I've been trapped in this cultic environment my entire life and I saw no way out because you know, I had never stepped outside of it. All my connections were inside of it. I'm like, how do I get away? So like looking forward and not seeing a way to get out, you know, I just fell into a depression. And, you know, in addition, all that unprocessed trauma, repressed emotions, repressed sexuality on top of that, just adding to the complexity of that mental health issue. Uh, you know, I became so suicidal that, you know, I really, it's just one day I was just, I woke up and I'm like, oh my gosh, like it was just this, feeling, existential feeling of like, this is the last day that I am alive, that I will be on this planet because like, I didn't see any possible way to just wake up the next day. And so I decided to really start making, I started making a, um, a recording, a suicide video. And I really thought that that was the day that I was going to die. And so after like filming it and, you know, talking out loud, I could already feel, because that was the first time that I ever verbally talked out loud about any, at that time, I just talked about, you know, different things that had happened to me. I didn't know like the psychological meaning behind them, but I knew that it caused me pain. And so I just talked about a lot of the pain and different things. And once I was done with it, like I felt, not all of it, but like a great bit of it, that like emotional turmoil leave. And that's when I began to realize the power of like telling your story, at least out loud or verbally telling it. And so once, once I decided that I would be fine with that, you know, just talking and so that out loud really helped. I was like, it was really, I guess the first time, and this was when I was eight. No, I think, no, I just turned 19. I think I was 19 and this at 19 years old. That's when I made the decision that I am going to claim my autonomy and I am going to start doing what is best for me based on, you know, who I am, how my body responds. And, you know, I was still so disconnected from myself and my body, but that was the first conscious choice of like, you know what? I'm not going to keep submitting. I'm not going to keep conforming. I'm not going to keep repressing myself. Like, this is driving me into depression. I'm not going to completely ignore my desires and my will. And because, you know, know, inside I'm like, I know what I need to be healthy and this is not it. This is not working. And so for me, 
the big thing that I realized that I needed, I'm like, okay, what do I need? Like, what am I not getting in this environment? I'm like, I'm not getting community. I'm not feeling connection. I'm not having connection. So I was like, how do I find that? And so for me, it was like the next week after that incident that I went to a very progressive and open-minded church. And I went by myself because I knew it was an affirming. They accepted the LGBTQ community. So I was like, okay, I'll go to this church. I'll try to connect with different people. And like, this is really scary for me. Like I was still, you know, I was always so shy growing up. I was always so afraid to talk to different people and just go in social situations alone. But for me, I was like, I have to do this. I have to take this courage and this step to find the help that I need. Um, but long story short, I met... Uh, um, a woman and her daughter there who actually lived right by Bob Jones University. And they, once they heard about my circumstances, they were like, oh my gosh, like, oh, you don't have a car? Oh, we can drive you to church every week and come with us. And oh, we want you to have dinner in our house sometimes. So they were very loving and accepting. And once I got to know them, they eventually gave me a key to their house. And so that was my new safe haven that I could walk to. I could walk to their house from the school and it was a much shorter distance in the park. And you know, I could just, I could just feel safe. And it's just, to me, like I didn't, it was, it caused another moment of cognitive dissonance because these people were not conforming to the fundamentalism that I've been taught that, you know, anyone outside of it was straying away from God, they were evil, and that people outside of that religion or our religion, they were like, they didn't have the love of God in them, they weren't nice people. So to experience the most love that I've ever gotten from anyone, from someone outside of the fold, of that cult, it just caused again that cognitive dissonance. And I was like, oh my gosh, like just really starting to admit that, okay, like there are a lot more things that they say that aren't true. And like started realizing that they they said these things to control us and to keep us dependent and keep us in the system. And and I think really as I started, I knew at that point that I wanted nothing to do with Christianity, but that was too still hard for me to deal with because I think there was a certain time in my life that religion was a good thing for me. It, it served a purpose, but I think I just, I grew out of it and I, you know, I've moved on to spirituality. And to me, like now I consider myself spiritual, but not religious. Um, but for me though, that, that, that when you're taught your entire life that this is the absolute truth, if you walk away from this, you will be so miserable. You'll fall into addiction. Your life will be nothing but memory, uh, meaningless. Um, it won't matter. Like God's going to punish you. He's going to curse you. He's going to like punish you until you come back. So really, that's an example of what I recently learned of what cults use. It's called phobia indoctrination. And this is Stephen Hassan, the cult expert, um, termed or coined this term. And it means that there's so much fear instilled in you of leaving. Like the thought of leaving causes so much fear that you stay. And so really, that's a big thing that I had to get over. I had to realize for myself from experience that I can find love. I can find acceptance. I can find happiness outside of this cult. And that was really hard for me to do. But once I like took that first step of like getting to know people on the outside and realizing a lot of the things that this cult and this, these cultic environments say isn't true, that's when I started really, I guess, deconstructing. I was like, all right, like once I was at the place where I realized that all these terrible things wouldn't happen to me like they said it would, um, that I could start deconstructing and, you know, dealing with that. And it was interesting because, you know, all the pain that they told me that I would feel outside of it, I was already feeling inside of their cult. <laughs> so at, from my perspective, I was like, well, it can't get worse than this. <laughs> so <laughs> let's just try to walk Next out. List. 
Yes. Nice twist. <laughs> and for me, like it was just slowly getting to know people on the outside. Because for me, like suddenly just being cut off in that group wasn't, it wasn't something I think I could handle at that time, for me at least. And so slowly as I made connections on the outside, and that was fine. But for me, as they began to send chapel services, I would really like critically think through things they were telling us. And, you know, how it might have an effect of our mental health and if it's actually healthy and if it's actually really true. And eventually, like, I got so frustrated. Like, their sermons at chapel were so shaming, so fear-based. I just stopped listening and I just did homework. Because this is just, I'm just tired at that time. Like, my religious trauma was just being triggered over and over again. And I was like, I cannot just deal with this. And like my my body, my mind was just, I was constantly in hypervigilance uh, hyper at Bob Jones because there's, there was just so much stress, so much trauma being triggered and so much to grapple and deal with. And so for me, um, I guess really, as I have like already like deconstructed, um, really some of the beliefs I taught about like mental health um, and even like gender roles, just thinking about that and I think it wasn't really, as I started deconstructing, I really then, after the deconstructing, I decided to deconvert, which I just went full speed ahead with, really like <laughs> jumped right in the deep end um, of that. And then I guess I want to talk about how I got to that point. But as I struggled with mental health throughout my college years, and you know, the pan, you know, COVID-19 happened and I got separated from that family. And you know, I had to go back home, and you know, I, I didn't see them for another year and a half. Um, so, because of that, I really had to do. I mean, I was stuck alone again. I was isolated. I'm like, oh my gosh, what do I do to deal with this? So, like, I think it was like the summer of twenty. Uh, it was the summer of twenty twenty. I think, yeah, it was. That that was my last depressive episode, and it was like really bad. It was the worst one that I'd ever had, and I never thought I would get worse than the one that I had at sixteen. And so for me, I was like, something is going on here. It is deeper than what they say. And then again, I still had no education on it, and I'm like, you know what? At 16, I tried to go to the doctor for antidepressants because I was depressed then, but my parents would not let me um, at all. So finally at 20, I'm like, I'm okay. Like I know antidepressants are going to fix this issue because it's just, there are emotional, psychological things, but it can help me cope and live my life. And so once I was finally able, I was able to get on antidepressants because, you know, I told my parents, I'm like, listen, I'm like, if I don't get on antidepressants, I'm going to quit my job. I'm not going to go to Bob Jones. I'm just going to be in bed all day because the main symptom of this last depressive episode, I think it was like the fourth one I had was that I was not sleeping. I was getting sleep deprived. And in order to try to get to sleep, I was just taking so many melatonin pills and sleeping pills until it just knocked me out. And the thing is, it didn't really knock me out, which really scared me that I could take all these different pills that were supposed to make me sleepy and they didn't. And it was just really um, evidence to me of like how much trapped negative psychic energy was in my mind and had to be dealt with and it wasn't going away. And so... Once I was on antidepressants and it helped me cope with that and I was able to finally um, start getting more sleep, um, you know, I went to Bob Jones University still struggling, struggling with depression my junior year. So it was like the fall of 2020. And, you know, sadly, I did 
thing, it did get worse as I got at Bob Jones. I was afraid it would. And eventually, like, I wanted to see a therapist, but there was no, there's no therapist at Bob Jones and like, I had no car. So a biblical counselor was my only option. And I did not want to do that. And really, I agreed to see a biblical counselor because I really truly, what this person didn't know is that I wanted to learn from them so I could deconstruct. So I could really know. I'm like, okay, what is this really all about? Like, let me meet one-on-one with this person who knows, at least from the conservative theology, this perspective. And, you know, if this is actually for me, if this is what I want, what it actually means, and so I can like hear it in a cohesive manner and not just random sermons every week at church or something. And so I'm like, okay, like I'll... So once I actually met with a, a biblical counselor and told him about my mental health um, struggles, and then I decided and I risked it that I, you know, I came out and I revealed my sexuality. And, you know, I, I what I what I was afraid of really happened. But you know, this biblical counselor blamed me for things that had happened in my life and said that I was, and, and you know, this is in air quotes, pay, paying for my sin. So he was basically saying that I deserved things that happened to me because of who I was. And that was just really hard to deal with, you know, because earlier that day I was suicidal and, you know, I was calling my mom on the phone, like trying to deal with it. I'm glad you made it through that day, but I don't know how you did with that (laughs) comment. Yes, it was like, I was just, honestly, I think once he said that, I just started to disassociate. I don't, don't really remember anything else that he said. And like disassociating is just such a common trauma response for me of just completely checking out um, mentally. And, you know, I think really once that happened, I think that was the last draw for me. I was like, all right. Cause like, now there were a lot of things that I learned about myself at Bob Jones, which I think it was good for me in a sense. But I learned that I really, at a young age, you know, I internalized unconsciously that. I had to conform to the religion to be loved and accepted. And if I didn't, then I wouldn't be loved and accepted. And if I didn't believe it, then I would be going to hell. So I convinced, I think, myself that, oh, I believe this, um, I would conform to this, but it wasn't personal. It's because, you know, it was for survival. Um, you know, if I didn't, I would suffer so much because, or suffer even more because of it. So once I actually learned that about myself, like, oh my gosh, like, I conformed to this to adapt to my environment. Like, because, you know, once I actually started, like, you know, taking notes in my discipleship um, sessions and like understanding and really like just forgetting anything that my parents taught me, just being like, okay, what is actually personal to me? Like, does this actually mean anything? Like, how is this actually benefiting my life? How is it making it better? And how, and can it make it better? And, um, you know, once the guy realized that, you know, I told him like, you know, I don't think I, I don't you know right now. And like, I told him like, I don't believe this at all now. Like, I don't care. It's just, fuck this, honestly. And so after that, he was like, well, he's like, I can't help you anymore since you're not saved, apparently. Um, and biblical counselors, like if you, if you don't conform to the, the religion, a, a biblical counselor, really, they're not allowed to really counsel you anymore. Um, and so that's why he's like, well, I can't help you anymore. And I think that was in the second session. I was like, I, yeah, I don't, I don't care. I don't give a fuck. This hasn't helped me at all. This has made my life so miserable and made it so much worse and caused so much harm. And so after that, um, I just moved on and it was still helpful to just talk that out and just, I think part of the burden was lifted off about worrying about being found out by staff since I already like came out and like I didn't get in trouble for that. Um, so I was like, okay, like, I guess I can just exist <laughs> and it's okay. Um, and so what happened was 
you know, there were still some moments of mental health issues because there was still that trauma that I hadn't dealt with and I wasn't aware of. And like, honestly, I think it was a few months before, I mean, I think it was really the summer of 2020 was when I found the term religious trauma and I connected with it, but I was too scared to like dig into it and explore it, afraid of all the things that like um, rise up to the surface. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because at Bob Jones, I was a visual arts major and I'm, I'm a very visual person. And I think in visual terms and, you know, art and, for, and specifically art photography helped me express um, those hard feelings and things coming on. So like once I actually started to dig into it and like to me, like visually in my mind, what, what happened in my mind, what I was doing is that I imagined that like all of this like junk and crap was like been trapped in the mud of like an ocean or a pond or something. And it's finally like rising to the surface and all this shit and crap and garbage is just floating. And like, that's how it felt like um, when I just really was in discipleship and starting to work through that. And so I think it was the end of my junior year, which was like the spring of 2021. Um, I was, he continued to disciple me that um semester because I had a very emotional experience. It was emotional. I just look back on it, but um, it was interesting because I've gotten saved like five times throughout my life just to make sure. And you know what I mean? Like, because there was always doubt around it. And so the last time I did yes. it, it was like... Ha- having mm. to get baptized or saved several times because uh. it, it, just like you said at the very beginning of this episode, like they... They tell you to feel secure in your faith, but then they mm. always say, but, but this and this and this, you know? Mm. So like, God is a very butt forward yes. God. It seems. Yes. Very butt forward. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that you got to mm-hmm. always make sure that you're, you're adhering to the protocol. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. and, and like when you don't, it causes that discomfort in you, which makes you want to conform more. So it just, it, it keeps you in line really. And they control you and you're dependent on them through that. But once I had that experience and it was to me, like I, I got saved. It was like, the, I think it was the spring of like 2021. It was just, it was an emotional, it was an emotional experience. That's really what it was. I was just so desperate. I really needed mental help, mental professional help, a therapist. So you last year. Mm-hmm. 2021. Yes, I did. It's interesting. And now I'm an apostate. So we'll get into that more. Um, And, you know, another thing about going back into that phobia indoctrination is that I was always taught that if you're really saved, they're like, you can never really leave the faith. Like Mm. the the Holy Spirit will be inside of you and he'll make you sick and do all these terrible things to you until, and it will force you to come back. You're like, you really can't do it. So that was another way that kept me in because I did feel so much discomfort from trying to leave. But once I actually started learning things from a psychological perspective, I understood that, oh my gosh, this is psychological. This is a conditioned reflex. I'm having this response to doing this because I've been taught to have this response to it over and over and over and over again. It is ingrained. So I just have to destroy that connection to that response, that reflex to not do that. I'm like, oh my gosh, this isn't actually the Holy Spirit. This is just a psychological response that I've been conditioned to Mm -hmm. do. And so once, once I actually started digging into the psychology of like, spiritual experiences and as more, more specifically I guess my own I'm like okay what am I experiencing what is the psychology um, behind this and 
you know, once, you know, once I told that, I told that person that I, you know, oh, I just got saved and blah, blah, blah. Cause I did want to be discipled because for me, I'm like, this being discipled is going to be the deciding factor of whether I stay or go because I want to do my research before I left. And again, he didn't know that that was the reason why I met with him, but he was excited, of course, to, um, be a, a biblical counselor for me. But the red flag was when he was like, oh, it's like you have the Holy Spirit inside of you now so we can change your sexuality. And I was what like... Kind of conversion, conversion therapy is this? This is just... Yes. And so for him, he's like, yeah, he's like right now, he's like, we're just going to do discipleship and then we'll kind of like transition it into changing your sexuality. Interesting. And I like, didn't know that, that kind of person held that type of power. You know, they should go into government and just change everything if they have that type of power. That's interesting. Oh my gosh. And so that made me uncomfortable. But since we were just digging into discipleship, I was like, I'm not worried about that now. But after being discipled by him for several months and, you know, of course, still having that experience. And once I began really understanding, I'm like, this was really emotional. And I'm like, you know, this conversion experience was just another excuse to repress these deeper issues. It was spiritual bypassing, really. It was just using spirituality to not really deal with these issues that weren't spiritual at all. And so I'm like, this, and of course, like his discipleship wasn't helping. And I didn't tell him that though, but I was just still learning. And it was really at the end of that semester when he started to turn it into conversion therapy. It was after one session of like, of him trying to like start digging into changing my sexuality. Like, you know, my nervous system went on high alert and the trauma responses happened. I disassociated. And like after the first session, like I really don't remember anything because I, you know, I think I just immediately automatically just checked out and just froze. And so after that though, I knew I'm like, I had enough autonomy at that time to be like, this is not healthy for me. This is not right. I don't care if this, police, this person believes this is right. I, I know me and this is not healthy. So I messaged this person. I was like, this is not healthy. I'm like, thank you for the discipleship you've done with me. But the whole change of the sexuality thing is like not, it's not healthy. It's not like, you know, I'm like, you might be able to do this to other people, but you're not going to do this to me. I'm like, this is unhealthy. And so he responded and I was like, oh, he's like, let's meet and talk about this. And I was like, no, like I'm not meeting with you. Like I've made my decision, like leave me alone. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's like, I didn't ghost him. Like I generally gave him reasons why I didn't want to, go back and he'd really try to coerce me into meeting with him again. And so, but I knew it was not the healthy thing. And like at the end of that semester, that was like the spring of 2021. Like this was, wow, barely a year ago. Oh my gosh. Um, that was you can when... see how I'm tripped up by the timeline too, because it seems like you've been in this, it seems like you've been in, in this state of mind that you're currently in for years. No, it's only um, been a year, which is crazy, but yeah. I'll dig into why. And it's because I really, like I said, once I started to deconvert, which was in the summer of 2021, I dove in the deep end. I made a list of everything, of all the claims that this religion made. And I'm like, okay, which ones can I actually approve or disprove? And the ones that I was shocked that I could easily and disprove. I just want to clarify before you go on. So mm -hmm. this all happened while you were in school? Oh, sorry. This happened at, the, this, still at, the, at college? It was after my junior, last semester junior year. So this started in like June or May or June of 2021. Okay. <laughs> so like I said, a year ago, basically. Wow. 
Um, and so yeah. this happened after because I didn't have time to deconvert at college. You're so busy doing all these other things. But in that summer, that's when it really started. Mm-hmm. And like I said, like I probably dove in too quickly and it was a lot emotionally to deal with. But um, I just was so sick of it. That's what I, that's what I, you know, said to him, like, I'm so sick of the toxicity that this religion has. I'm like, you can tell me how, you can tell me all these, show me all these like beautiful verses. I'm like, that's not going to mean the ugly ones aren't there. And that's not going to remove, you know, the attachment that they have on me. But what I didn't realize was that, you know, trauma, you know, you can't read a Bible verse and trauma will go away. Trauma is trauma. It takes time to work through a professional who actually is trained and knows how to deal with that. And so once I started like digging more, I dig more into religious trauma. And once I actually read a few articles on it, I just started crying uh, because all the symptoms and everything that they were talking about, I experienced. And like, you know, for anyone listening, you don't have to experience all the symptoms to have religious trauma. Like one is enough, trust. <laughs> but for me, like through all my experience, I was like, there are so many things that I related to. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this is the issue. And like, wasn't it the issue? I'm like, I can find a solution. I can deal with this. And like, of course, you know, once I found out, I'm like, oh, well, religious trauma was a term coined in 2011 by Marlene Winnell. And there's not really too much research on this yet because we have so much more to go. Um, but for me, I was like, okay, like this is all the trauma that this religion has caused. <laughs> and, you know, I started digging into um, how that affected me despite just starting to read books that were available on religious trauma. And, you know, Marlene Winnell's one, I mean, it's called Leaving the Fold. That really helped me leave because um, she really digs into the psychology and the toxicity um, behind this fundamentalist mindset. But that book, yeah, really helps me um, leave. But that summer, I, the things that I could actually research and dig into was one, inerrancy. I was always told the Bible is perfect. And, you know, there is no contradiction in it. So I was like, okay, like if I can prove there's errors in the Bible, then that's going to start uh, detaching the control that it has over me. So once like I bought a book, sorry, are you still there? I'm still here. <laughs> I'm sorry. I saw something move on my screen or something. I was like, oh my gosh, oh, did, her, did, it, did her call just drop? I don't know no, what happened. we're still here. Good. Okay. Just making sure. Um, but there's this book I got and I'm just going to read the title now. It's like, All That's Wrong with the Bible. And it's by Jonathan David Connor. Um, but he really, you know, he has the credentials. Um, he has a, he has a PhD. <laughs> so he has the credentials to dig into theology and, you know, the translation of things. And he put together a book that you can you can use it as a guide to look in your own Bible and um, see the different contradictions. And like, it's funny because I actually have a Bible that is just highlighted with contradictions and errors and different things, which is funny. And like part of that deconversion was, it's, this is really funny, I would read the Bible. I would read all the errors and contradictions in the Bible every day <laughs> to deconvert. <laughs> The way to deconstruction is to pick apart scripture. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's so funny. It I, was, folks. I was in my Bible every day to deconvert. But to me, because I knew that I was, those messages were so ingrained in me, I had to constantly prove to myself and get in my mind like, okay, these, there are errors. There are errors in this. I see it. I'm proving it. Like, this is it. So just going through his book, underlying different things. And understanding that, oh my gosh, like these two things can't be true at the same time. This is an error. Like this can't be a work of a perfect God at all. 
Um, and so working through that and then honestly, like there were things in scripture that I avoided when I was a Christian that made me uncomfortable, especially in like the Old Testament. And once I actually dug into a lot of the violence and how, you know, in the Bible, there are instances of God, you know, God in quotes or whatever, would tell the Israelites, you know, to take for cities and to take their women and children, take the virgins for yourselves and just basically rape them. I was like, this is making me really uncomfortable. Like this is just not it. And so once I like, this guy really does cover a lot of the violence too in scripture, the things that a lot of Christians don't want to grapple with. And once I actually like read that and saw it and I was like, oh my gosh, like how, how can I even, you know, say that I serve this person and, you know, even finding out that there's errors that like, that was a big foundation to the fundamentalist faith is the inerrancy. So once you like chop that, the rest of it really comes tumbling down a lot. Um, but after that, I then started learning about mythology and understanding how a lot of stories, like the Bible is mythology. It's, it's stories that have been rehashed from other religions, other cultures. And it's interesting because all cultures have always had very similar stories foundationally. Now, the specifics might be different, but at the foundation, the stories are the same. Like, for example, like Noah's Ark of someone building a boat or whatever, and there's a flood and getting animals on it and all these different things. Like the Epic of Gilgamesh or whatever, however you say it, that was written before Noah's Ark. And like, it is literally Noah's Ark. Like Noah's Ark plagiarized from that. And so once I like read both of those stories and I was like, oh my gosh, like this story, like once I started like critically thinking logically and, you know, trying to understand it from different perspectives, I was like, I was like, okay, I'm like, this is the equivalent to if I wrote a college paper and I took my friend's paper and I completely paraphrased it, but I, you know, just writing it down in different wording, but I had the same ideas. This is exactly what has happened with this. I was like, oh. That's mind boggling. I had no yes. idea that Noah's Ark is plagiarized. <laughs> this is not a what the fuck Bible story segment, but what the fuck? <laughs> and so the interesting thing is this though, once I started deconstructing more, Carl Jung, who is a psychologist, um, he, Try to understand. He's like, why do all these cultures have the same stories? Because he's like, they didn't have contact with each other. Um, they were separated, but they had the same stories. So technically, like, they didn't steal from each other, but they had the same stories. Um, so he was like, how did this happen? So he he had this theory of it's called the collective unconscious, and it's just an area of the mind or brain that every single person has in common. That's the same, I guess you would say. That's not personal to you, and that stores these certain ideas or archetypes or energies type things that express itself in these stories. That's that's just the very watered down. Yes, like the way that we're all connected in that way. In our our frame of mind and and our... Yes, Mm -hmm. most definitely. We are going way off track with your deconstruction story. (laughs) I mean, this is part of my deconstruction though. That's that's true. That's true. It's a big part of it. So they are deconstructing through that mythology of like understanding, okay, these stories, like the the creation story, that's been rehashed and used in so many cultures is not an original story in the Bible. So the more that you uncovered like mythological accounts, Mm -hmm. it became clear to you that a lot of it was directly Mm-hmm. Or in, in yeah. some circumstances, indirectly or plagiarized yeah, version indirectly. of a Bible mm-hmm. story. Yeah, mm-hmm. and really, like, like I began to see the Bible in a whole new light. Like I didn't just dismiss it. I was like, wait, I'm like, there is actual worth in learning mythology, not necessarily for absolute truth, but 
mythology has it really mythology is an expression of psychic happenings of psychic conflicts and really how to work through them and really um how it helps you work through conflicts in your life but it's just the unconscious way of communicating it and how we've put it into stories and that's what young hypothesized but the book that helped me do to the myths is that there's a book called 101 myths of the bible it's by gary greenberg and he'll walk you through the bible he'll show you the bible story and he'll show you the story that was written long before it and how it's similar and same in a lot of aspects and so then I was like, okay, I'm looking at this. I went, I began looking at it. I, I gave, I completely deconstructed the literal view. And I be, then just saw the Bible for what it was, mythology. And I was like, okay, let me learn from mythology. But I want to learn from different mythology, like from their original stories and where they started and not, you know, where they progressed or changed. And, you know, for me, once I finally, you know, debunked, the originality of the Bible, the you know, it wasn't inerrant. It was full of so many errors, and even there was a lot of debate around historical accuracy too. Um, once I researched that, I was like, oh my gosh, so all these things. So after after several months of just doing this daily Bible reading <laughs> and constantly looking through this book, reading these things over and over and over again, and explaining my own interpretation of um, spiritual experiences and how my biases and perception can distort that, really. Um, it was, you know, by, I think it was like, mm, it was the fall of that senior year that, you know, I wasn't ready to go public with it yet. But like I said, I had dug a lot into my religious trauma and I really wanted to dig into it more. So what happened was I was an art major and I was, I had an internship at the school and a part of that internship or photo internship was that I could work on my portfolio. So I decided to work on an, like an art photo series that explored religious trauma as just a way for a project and, you know, to have that to showcase and also to help me work through my own religious trauma. And really making that series just helped me make so much progress and just digging into my psyche and uncovering all this, the trauma. And, you know, the, the religious trauma series, I published it online back in like January of 2022 of this year. Um, and really, what gets to the big part of the story of how I left was that I shared my story on Joshua Harris's IGTV show. I reached out to him on Instagram because I knew he had a show and I was like, hey, like I'm going to publish this religious trauma series soon. Um, I would really love to be on your show and talk about it. And, you know, because, you know, you have an audience I think would enjoy this and relate and help them. And, you know, I literally like, I planned this series for three months and I spent 60 plus hours working on it. And, you know, just doing all, just putting so much time into it and thought, like, you know, it was just, it was the most personal thing I had ever created. And, you know, and I knew of that originally, I'm like, I'm going to post this on Instagram and I'm going to tell my story through these pictures, but also through the captions. So I was literally writing captions for two months, just trying to make sure it was just exactly how I wanted it to be said. And I was playing just every single thing very meticulously. And, you know, I was expelled from Bob Jones my very last semester of my senior year. I was going to graduate in May of 2022 and I was expelled. Um, and so that was tough, but you know, on that show, on Joshua Harris's show, I told my story. I said I deconverted because that's that is not healthy for me. That religion, um, I found happiness and peace 
um, outside of it. And I found community outside of it. And, you know, a lot of, I debunked a lot of the things that they told me and they were just, there was so much trauma that I prioritized my mental health, my well being, and I became my own hero. I saved myself from this religion, <laughs> ironically. Um, and so after that, after saying that, that I deconverted, deconstructed, all these things, you know, Bob Jones, they, you know, it was two weeks into that semester, I was expelled. And, you know, it was tough, but, you know, it's been amazing to see how many wonderful things have happened since being kicked out. So of course, you know, that interview happened. And, you know, since I was kicked out, I began to go on different podcasts to share my story and to continue to build my online following to help other people and to educate people on religious trauma, on spiritual abuse, and to inspire people to speak up and to share their stories and to find a community and to find validation and connection. And so I just kept sharing my story on different podcasts and sharing it on different blogs to reach as many people as I could. And it's just every time I tell my story, it just, oh, it's just, especially after the first time, it just felt like a weight off my chest just left. Like there was this untold story inside of me that was creating agony, like that quote from earlier. And I released it. I let it go. And, you know, so yeah, so being on a different podcast have been, it's been great for me. And, Another great thing is that, you know, I've, I figured out the career that I want to do. Like, I want to become a therapist and eventually a psychologist. You know, I want to help religious trauma survivors and I want to research religious trauma and create, really create a type of therapy specifically targeted to religious trauma because we don't have that yet. We have a general model for trauma, but not specifically religious trauma. But that's something I think, yeah, I will spend the rest of my life researching, um, and looking into. Yes, I think that's amazing. Uh, I think that you're really going to, um, I think you're going to touch a lot of people with your story as well as, I mean, for how fiercely you advocate for people who have experienced religious trauma is just, it's mind boggling. It's amazing mm. and it's beautiful. I mm-hmm. love your platform. I love oh, all the content you. that you put out, whether mm-hmm. it's TikTok, Instagram, like I yeah. love seeing your content. Literally mm-hmm. right before this interview, I was listening to your latest episode. Um, uh, oh gosh, who is the woman that you spoke with? Uh, Shawana or is Shawana. it? I, yeah, yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. Amazing, yeah. amazing pod with her. Mm. Um, yeah. So yeah. Um, you're just amazing. Oh, that's so sweet. I was I was having a conversation with someone for I was interviewing someone for my podcast, and you know we were talking about how you know how we you know we're speaking up and telling our stories, and you know, for us we're like you know we we don't want anyone else to have to go through all the pain that we did. So we're trying to bring awareness and to help people work through religious trauma and to get help because we don't think anyone you know should go through those things. And so you know. Other things that have worked out since leaving for me is that, you know, back in April, I was hired um, by Rachel Bernstein, you know, who is a cult expert, one of the top cult experts in the world. And she's a therapist and like she has her own podcast, Indoctrination. But I was, I was, I recorded my episode with her back in February, but she hired me in um, April. Um, But I was honored that, you know, she liked my content. She wanted me to help her with her social media. And, you know, it's been great working for her and being under her and, you know, see, having her as a mentor because really what she's doing is part of what I want to do too, is just being a cult expert and helping people get rid of that indoctrination and that cult mindset. And yes, the amount of education that you guys provide on both of your platforms, it's really important um, yes. to help people that are in currently in 
you know, a cult or a cultish type religious environment trying to get out, you know, because obviously it took you a while. Mm, um, yes. And you were, like, you were indoctrinated mm. for oh, my whole childhood. Years. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, imagine someone that's been in it 40, 50 years. Mm, so, my gosh. really, mm. the more education that's brought to it, the more awareness that's brought to it can inspire more people to leave and to pursue their own path. And that's just so powerful. Mm, yes. And like another, I think yeah, another fantastic thing that's happened is that I was able to transfer 90 credits to another college, which is three years of college. Um, so I've now, I've started my senior year a few weeks ago. I'm starting over again. I'll graduate in, um, in May of 2023. Uh, Hell right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so excited. I know. And like, I'm so excited to just finish and I'm going to take a break before I go on to my master's because I think there's still things to work through in therapy and heal. A well deserved break, I'll say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll take a break, save up money, get my master's and then, you know, eventually a doctorate and all those things. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited. Um, really for, you know, now that I'm escaped the cult that I can actually, know, be free and, you know, help other people and bring awareness. And actually, you know, it's just so freeing to speak up and be authentic and be yourself and to help other people do the same. Absolutely. I love that message. Um, Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us and for being vulnerable. Um, Mm -hmm. This is, you know, a safe place to have those messy conversations. And I thank you for taking time out for me to talk about Mm -hmm. your whole story. Uh, Where Mm -hmm. can our listeners connect with you on Mm -hmm. social media? Yes. Like I'm very active on TikTok, um, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. It's Andrew Pledger with the four. And then um, I'll send you my link tree because that has all my socials in it. But yeah, that's, I have that in every um, profile. Perfect. We can link that in our show notes. So yeah, that's awesome. Um, I highly encourage you guys to all tune in to his podcast, Speaking Up with Andrew Pledger. He has a lot of great guests on there. I was interviewed on there if you want to listen to that, um, which I think is coming out in two months, right? Mm. I think it's in September. Um, yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, anywho... You'll, you'll hear me there if you tune into that one. Um, Andrew, I just want to thank you again. And we'll see you guys next time. Thank you for tuning in for the Messy Conversations pod.